0: We're glad to have you with us. Um, I want to share a a message this morning that's sort of at the macro level of where we're at uh, in society and the times that we are living in. And I've entitled my message, uh, Reclaiming the Christian Mind. I want to read some verses for us that will frame my message. Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how shall it be made salty again? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Romans 8, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Nehemiah 8, 1. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which, is in, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And then Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So Father, we bow before you. We thank you, God, for your perfect word. We thank you, God, for the wisdom and the counsel that's in it. We pray that you would reinvigorate us. We pray that you would water us. We pray, God, that you would challenge us and grow us afresh. Holy Spirit, be our teacher in our midst. We thank you for your great word. We thank you, Father God, for the truth that comes to us. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we know, one of the driving agendas of our times is climate change. From shrinking polar caps, to raging hurricanes, to the growing extinction of species, we are hearing and seeing how dangerous, even catastrophic, climate change can be. From Al Gore, who won the Nobel Prize in 27, to Greta Thunberg, who was named as the 2019 Time Person of the Year, The famous 16-year-old girl, if you watch the news feeds, she was the one that boldly rebuked the leaders at the UN in September, proclaiming to them, how dare you, for their inaction with regard to global warming. There's been a a steady stream of voices proclaiming to us, it's now or never if we want to save our planet. But as dire as climate change is, there's a situation more dire than global warming and that is spiritual climate change. There's a spiritual environment change that is sweeping the earth which is just as chilling as the earth is warming. The new social and cultural forces in the public square are seeking to strangle the freedom of each person to choose and practice their own religion without fear. And this attitude behind these forces are fast becoming entrenched in our laws and government leaders. And in particular, there's a virulent strain, virulent sentiment against Christianity, particularly in Western countries. Intolerance, hatred of civility, truth shaming, scorning, mob behavior, social media bullying, and online vitriol towards anyone that wants to be a follower of Jesus and his values or calls themselves Christians. These kinds of sentiments are reaching fever levels. Interestingly, Angela Merkel, who is the chancellor of Germany, said this a few years back. She said that Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. This is pretty amazing for a head of state to say. Studies in England confirmed her claim, saying we may not want to hear it, but Christianity is in peril. Christians are targeted more than any other body of believers. And for us in Canada, what happens in Europe, those winds eventually blow into our country, which we're already seeing here in Vancouver. And these fever levels are not just a spike in the data, it's becoming normalized, it's the new normal. The very beliefs that carried Western nations to unimaginable prosperity and blessing are now being abandoned like the plague. Christians face extinction if spiritual climate change continues. How did we get here? Well, my answer may surprise you in that the problem is not the world, the problem is us. We have regressed. We have lost our salt and light. We have lost our leavening effect. Instead of overturning Rome like the early church did in its inception, Rome is overturning us. Instead of coming out of Babylon, we are flocking to Babylon. We've lost our spark, our vitality, our natural influencing effect on culture and hence our impact on society. If we want revival in the land, we need it in the church first. We need to rebuild our Christian civilization, which is to say we need to make our local churches the city of God. We need to become a nation again. And if we don't get our knowledge back, we will be destroyed. In short, we need to reclaim the Christian mind. Where are the prophetic voices that are crying out, how dare you, as in drift from God? Who are willing to model radical love and followership of Jesus Christ? Where are the agitators of change in the church imploring us to return to God and his ways? Who is challenging us to embrace the totality of God's word from Genesis to Revelation and decrying, cherry-picking Christians and theologians that edit the Bible as if they have more wisdom than the eternal God? I'm going to give you one example among many. I've chosen this example specifically. It's only semi-controversial, and it's semi-off the grid, and not a full-on controversial issue lest I start a riot. So there's a popular doctrine out there that's called annihilationism, it's a big word. The basic idea is this, if we die without Jesus, we don't experience judgment forever, rather at some point we're just extinguished, and then we cease to exist because an eternal hell is too cruel and too hard to fathom. Now, on the outside, it sounds like kind of an attractive idea. Those that reject God experience some grave penalty, but not forever. Eventually, after a given period of torment, they will be annihilated, and then it's over. This may sound sympathetic and merciful, but it's unbiblical, as much as even some famous theologians try to substantiate it. It's an erroneous teaching because it fails at the premise level. We're created in God's image, which means, like God, we are eternal beings. We are created for eternity. We cannot be annihilated. It's an impossibility. Now, animals and all the wonderful creatures under the sun, they are not created in God's image, and hence, they do not exist forever. For those of you that are pet lovers and love your cats and dogs, I'm not quite sure you're will be there with you in heaven. But it's not so with humans. We are created to live forever. We are eternal beings no matter where our final destination is. This means every person that has ever lived is still alive today. No one is extinguished and no one is annihilated. Now, why do I bring up this example? Because it illustrates the pitched battle over the Bible's authority regarding every area of our life, whether it's philosophical, philosophical, theological or practical, down to how we should dress, how we should eat, how we should raise our kids, how we should spend our money, how we should enjoy sex, how we should vote in the elections. Yeah, the Bible is that practical. But none of us will make a difference if we don't have a Christian mind that is one who is willing to submit his or her life to the truth of God no matter the cost. And that's the pivotal phrase there, no matter the cost while we're living in comfort, while we're living in convenience, while we have peace around us, it's easy to follow Jesus. But when the pressure is turned up, when the heat is on, will we continue to follow? Are you ready to go to jail for your faith if it's necessary? That might sound like it's sounding alarm here in peaceful Canada, but there are things that are brewing, and I don't want you to be caught unawares. Are you ready to be called out to being a bigot, a racist, a hater when in fact we are the exact opposite of those characterizations? And why are we the opposite? Why in fact are we the most inclusive, loving, caring, non-racist, illumined people on planet earth? Because we are pro-Jesus, which means we are called to act, think, love, and behave just like Jesus. There was no one more loving, more caring, more inclusive, and more filled with truth than our Lord Jesus. Jesus based his life on the word, and by golly, that's what we're going to do. Jesus was kind and gentle and caring, and by golly, that's who we are. Jesus was wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, so we will be. Jesus had the ultimate Christian mind. And having a Christian mind doesn't mean that you have to be obnoxious or surly or look frumpy or out of date. Doesn't mean you have to be uncool or unfashionable to make a statement. Jesus was loudest at times by being most silent. Think about his trial. He was most provocative at times when he was most gentle. Think about the woman caught in adultery. He was most aggressive when he was supposed to be most solemn. Think about when he overturned the tables in the temple. The Christian mind knows when, where, how, and what. As a church, we are not afraid of a fight. We just know when it's time to go to war. And no one was better at it than Jesus. So if Jesus is a picture of a Christian mind that we want to strive for, how do we grow into that? Of course, our source is the word of God. This is where God has revealed his thoughts, his truth, in a single studyable source. But remember that God is not your typical author. He did not write this as a self-improvement or self-help book. He did not write it as a fad book. He did not even write it as a book of doctrine. In fact, the book is not even written sequentially. If you know the organization of the Bible, you realize that things are actually out of order. The history of the Old Testament stops in the middle of the Old Testament. And when you start reading the prophets, it doesn't continue. You rewind back to the historical periods. It's not in sequence. God did not use a single author. He used over 30 writers. He didn't write it in one sitting. The book was written in vastly different eras over hundreds of years. Now, some chapters are utterly mind-numbing and sleep-inducing to read and others are page-turners. Some chapters require to think about it for a whole lifetime, and others a child can digest in a moment. In his utter genius, God has given his mind through stories and history and poetry and parables, instructions, prophecies, keen sayings, cautionary tales, rebukes, tirades, yes, divine tirades, songs and monologues, so that all of our learning styles are stimulated? How do we access his knowledge so that our minds can be renewed from being worldly? How do we access this knowledge so that we stop our regression and keep ourselves from being destroyed by lack of knowledge? Well, the answer is so simple, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. The solution is to reclaiming the Christian mind is incredibly easy to understand. We read and we obey. That's it, two steps. So step number one, we are what we read. You've heard the saying, you are what you eat. But intellectually, you are what you read. And if you don't read the Bible, you create a vacuum for everything but God to fill your thoughts. If you love popcorn romance books, that's where your idea of love will come from. If you love travel books, your idea of getting the most out of life might be getting to the next exotic location. If you love business books, you will think that success is defined by your riches. Now, I've studied a lot of books on leadership, so I tend to see things from a leadership point of view. We are what we read. Therefore, to cultivate the Christian mind, we have to read the Word of God. It doesn't matter if you have three or five or ten different kinds of Bibles in your library or on your bedside. If you don't read it, it doesn't make a single difference in your life. If you don't read and fill your mind with God's thoughts, trust me, you will be pushed around in your thoughts and your values and subsequently how you behave will be completely shaped by the world. Completely shaped by the world. Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook have done more to shape this millennial generation than the Bible. Why? Because it's more read than the Bible. Our thoughts shape who we are. Now why do countries like China do everything they can to control and censor what their people read on the internet? Because they're afraid people will stray from communism by what they read. That's the power of reading. But the fact that China does this tells you they are already on the wrong side of history because they fear a free market of ideas where the best ideas prevail. If communism is the best way to think, then there is nothing to fear from the West. That is why the Bible is the greatest defender and protector of free speech. Contrary to many opinions of our politicians in this country, the Bible is the greatest protector of free speech. The Bible does not muzzle people. The Bible is not afraid to compete in a market of free ideas. The Bible does not shut down rigorous thinking for fear that people might turn away from God. Oh, don't think about that because it will lead you away from Jesus. No, the Bible is not afraid of that. Rather, it encourages it so that people can see how insanely beautiful and insanely great our God is. Now, this doesn't come by forcing people to think what the Bible thinks. It comes from people freely choosing Jesus as they consider his claims. If God's truth is the ultimate truth, it will always prevail in the long run. If God created us, if he created us, then of course he knows how we're wired, what makes us happy or sad, fulfilled or frustrated, excited or bored, purposeful or despondent. All that insight comes from the Bible. When we read the Bible, it shapes us and renews us back to God's original design, and that's where joy and peace and eternal life is. That's why we have to be ferocious readers of the Bible. We become what we read. Now in Nehemiah chapter 8, one of the greatest turnarounds in Old Testament history was triggered by this simple act, reading the Bible. I'll give you a couple of the extended verses there. Verse 2 here. After all the people had gathered as one man at the square, Ezra the scribe brought the book of the law. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. If you look at the Bible timeline, this was 900 years of generational disconnect. All of a sudden the word is restored to them and now it's being read to them. Reading is a core skill for reclaiming who we are. Reading is not a passive activity. There are many important aspects tied to active reading. We have to be physically engaged. To read his word, you need to sit at a desk, turn on the light, open the Bible, get out pen and paper, turn off all your other distractions, and read the words on the page. We need to comprehend the Bible and study it from every angle. Nehemiah goes on to say that the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, translating to give sense so that they understood the reading. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's household, of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. To comprehend the Bible wholly, we need to study it book by book, we need to study it holistically. What does the scripture say in totality about God's nature, his character, his attributes? We need to study it practically. And this is the part I think that touches us the most. What does the Bible say about same-sex attraction? What does the Bible say about gender fluidity? If someone asks you, can you tell me what the Bible says? Can you quote a verse or two? If someone asks you about abortion, do you know what Jesus says about these topics? If we don't have familiarity, if we don't have a literacy around these subjects, how can we be an influence in society? How can we engage in the dialogue? How can we be salt and light in the public square? Our mouths are silent because we don't have the words to say. We don't have the words to say because we haven't studied. And we haven't studied because we haven't read. And in the end, our influence on society and our cities ebbs and goes away. That's why we have to reclaim the Christian mind. What does the Bible say about white privilege? Is it somewhere in here? Is there a theme about white privilege? Can you quote me a couple verses? Absolutely. There's verses that speak to these topics. How about the Me Too movement? These are all burning issues of the day, and the world tells you if you're not on the right side of these issues, you should be ashamed. Or as they say in the States, you are not woke. Now, if you really knew what the Bible teaches on these things, you were never asleep. You've always been awake. Knowing what is politically correct culture is important, but more important is being biblically grounded. Are you with me? You hearing what I'm saying on these things? It's so important that we comprehend the Bible, study it from every angle, historically, practically, holistically. Can you tell me what the Holy Spirit is like? I don't make up stuff about the Holy Spirit. I don't make up stuff up about who God is. It's all right here in this source. We can study it with joy and delight and confidence. And of course, Nehemiah tells us that we need to study it every single day. Verse 18, he read from the book of the law daily. The first rule of Bible reading is make sure you get a Bible that you understand. Don't get a King James Bible where maybe you don't understand the these and the thous. If you have to start with the message Bible or the living Bible, start there. I became a Christian by reading the living Bible. In fact, it was my mother that gave me a Bible from one of her co-workers from 3M. And I'd never read the Bible before in my entire life. And I went and I got this Bible and read the first 25 chapters of Genesis. I was blown away by the beauty of it because I could understand it. But if I opened up a King James Version, I'm sure I would have got lost. So if you have a Bible that you're struggling with, go get one that you really comprehend and understand so that you can ingest it, enjoy it every single day. Now the context of Nehemiah chapter 8 is that God is sending the people of God back to Israel. After 70 years of exilement in Babylon, Israel has now rebuilt the temple, their most sacred symbol of their faith. Israel had rebuilt the walls of the city, but the key to their renewal was getting their mind back. That moment when Ezra ascended into the podium and began reading the word of God, that was when their renewal was made complete. We are what we read. We are what we obey. You can read all the fishing books you want, but if you don't fish, you won't be a fisherman. You can read all the cooking books you want, but if you don't actually get into the kitchen and cook, you won't be a cook. You can read all the books you want on working out, but if you don't actually get into the gym, you won't get into shape. So just because you read these books, it doesn't make you a fisherman or a cook or an athlete. You have to act on what you read. Again, we find this played out in Nehemiah chapter 8. For Israel to complete its comeback, they had to obey the law. And obeying the law entails several important things. First is that we have to revere God's word. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood. I just love this scene. When was the last time you saw just a reverence for who God is? Why do I pray before each sermon? Number one is to prepare my own heart, but it's for us to honor the word of God. It's not just a pastoral routine. It's not just a a preaching technique. It's to settle my heart and say, God, speak to me. When we come to church, we shouldn't come to our services just dead cold. You know, the greatest time of warfare is those 30 minutes before church where the enemy is like coming at you and you get into fights with your spouse. I had a pastor friend who got into a fight with his wife so frequently, he devised a very powerful strategy. They drove a separate car to church every Sunday morning. Funny. Funny. But there's a reverence that God wants us to bring to the word. And when we revere God's word, it prepares our heart to do what it says. Reverence is crucial to the heart as God only walks through open doors. If your heart is shut, if it's cold, if you're resistant, God's not going to barge in. He is a gentleman. Revelation says he knocks on the door. That's, That's a picture of permission. Will you allow me to come in? The creator of the universe, the most powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign individual knocks on your door. Reverence allows our hearts to come to a place where we become open. God forces nothing. Another thing that we see in the text here is that we need to weep over the word. Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. So the word of God was being read, and a weeping came over the multitudes. Why do we weep when we read the word? Because we become aware of the gap between my life and God's life. Psalm 119. Verses 130 says, the entrance of your word gives light. What weeping does is it softens the ground of our heart to change, to turn around, to act differently. Weeping is a signal that the Spirit of God is touching us. Weeping is a signal that we're ready for something different in our lives. Weeping is a a picture of a sorrow that we have of how we've behaved and acted before and that God is offering a different future, one of hope, one of strength, one of confidence and health. Weeping signals that we're ready to repent and that we're sorrowful for our shortcomings and shortcomings when we show our emotion in that way. Weeping shows that we're aware of our condition. Reading the word of God is meant to stir up our heart and our emotions and our affections towards God. That's why coldness and spiritual climate change is such a lethal disease that's coming on the earth. Chills everyone's heart. Whatever. Indifference. Passivity. I don't really care. That's a deadly strategy from the enemy. Weeping stirs up those affections afresh. We see next that we need to be empowered by the spirit. Nehemiah said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has prepared nothing for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The entering of God's truth to an open, soft heart brings grace. This is what's so unique about Christianity versus any other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world, see these things you have to do, go do it. God says, see these things that you have to do, you can't do it. So I'll put my spirit in you so that you can walk in it. That's the unimaginable, crazy beauty of Christianity. He's asking us to walk out his life in the power of his spirit, not your spirit. The Holy Spirit brings cleansing, and cleansing brings hope. Clarity brings momentum and excitement of a better version of yourself. And the Holy Spirit comes to fill our hearts with power when we say, God, conform me to you and to your truth. We also see here that we must make booths. So what are we referring to here? Well, in the text, the scripture says that when the people heard what was being read, there was a section that they came to in which the feast of booths was to be celebrated. Well, what's that? There are seven feasts that are given to us in the Old Testament. The last feast that was to be celebrated in the fall season was called the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booze. This was a celebration in which the people of God gave thanks for the blessing of the fall harvest. God, you're our sustainer. You're the one that favors us. You're the one that gives us sustenance. And every single year, the people of God, the Israelites, were to create these booze, live inside of them, and just celebrate God's goodness. I just have a, a couple pictures there of how booze are set up, whether it's out you know, in a countryside or whether right there in, in Jerusalem. And so celebrating booths, and you, and you start living in a different space. When you obey the word of God, you start living in a different space. You're living in God's reality, not your own reality you start aligning yourself with God's perspective and God's emotions and God's truth and not your own truth. And the thing about obedience is you only activate the power of it by actually obeying it. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That sequence is so important. It's not, I am the truth, I'm the way, I'm the life. No, you experience Jesus as the the way first. You obey him and then you come into the understanding of everything that he said. And so when we live in these booths, we start living in a new space in God. And God becomes our covering, which Israel had not done for 900 years because they had been disconnected from God's word. Now their identity was restored. If you're wrestling over your identity, if you feel confused, you're not sure who you are, what your strengths are, you find it in God, the one who created you. Is it a journey? Yes, it's a journey. Will you make mistakes? Yes, you'll make mistakes. But it's God's invisible hand that's guiding us along, and we get to live in these booze, which are a testament of God's sustenance in our lives. Obedience clinched their restoration. We become what we obey. Reading and obeying the word as Christians seems so basic, so unsexy, but the hard work is actually exhilarating because it's how we get our mind back. It seems so simple to do. But clearly we are not engaged in this core exercise because we're experiencing a near collapse, if not total collapse, of our influence on the culture around us. We have prominent pastors, worship leaders, and authors that are completely abandoning their faith. Go on Google and you will find A multitude of people that are walking away from Jesus Christ is becoming a near epidemic. We are seeing apostasy with our own eyes. People who used to proclaim Jesus, people who used to raise holy hands to God, people who used to lead worship songs from the platform, now saying, I'm rediscovering myself. I'm on a different journey. No wonder there's no potency left in the church. If the leaders are going that way, where are the sheep going to go? Now, this is a situation where the sheep can shame the shepherds. You can have more passion, more intensity, more focus than the leaders because the leaders need to be spoken to. Therefore, you have this prophetic picture of a 16-year-old rebuking the world leaders. Get your act together. It shouldn't be that way, right? Whenever we step into this pulpit, we have a sacred duty to stir you, to remind you, to draw you close to God's word and who he is as a person. Some of these Christian leaders, statesmen in the body of Christ, they've turned aside to the idols of the world, the latest social, political, shiny, hot-button issue. Oh, that we would be popular and be invited on Oprah, get interviewed by all these wonderful media people. That's why we need a prophetic correction. We must reclaim the Christian mind. So, here's my thoughts in closing there's nothing more beautiful than the Christian mind. Now, the world says there's nothing worse than the Christian mind. Oh, you're so narrow minded. You're so bigoted. You're so closed minded. You're so back there. They've got it wrong. When they say that, they're coming not against us, they're coming against Jesus. Because Jesus told us in John 15 if the world hates you, keep in mind that they hated me first. Their beef is with him and not with us. We're not the haters, we're the lovers of Jesus. We do not want to be destroyed for lack of knowledge, rather, we want to flourish because of the abundance of our knowledge. We don't want to regress in our thinking, we want to be renewed in our thinking. We don't want to scatter from the word, rather we want to gather, just like the Israelites did in Nehemiah 8. Gathered around the word in front of the water gate. I mean that, that picture there, the water gate is such a powerful message in and of itself. Speaking of irrigation and nourishment. and Your leaf does not wither in Psalm 1, and there's so many beautiful connections there that is a sermon in and of itself. But we don't want to scatter from the word, we want to gather around it. It's our fireplace. When you come to church, every single Sunday you go to your cell group meetings, the word of God's your fireplace. It's awesome, it's beautiful. Fire is just absolutely mesmerizing. And that's what the word should be in your life. So what I'm calling for in this message is not a one-time shot in the arm to get back into Bible reading but I'm issuing a challenge that will take decades, maybe generations, to achieve. This is not a generational challenge. This is a generational challenge, not just a one-time exercise. The answer lies within us. The laws, the courts, the politicians in Canada are already hating on us. And if you're not in touch with some of the things that are happening, you're thinking, boy, Pastor Rich, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to. It's creeping in. You'll see what I'm talking about. But these kinds of things, they won't be reversed overnight. They need to see a new generation of Christians to change their sentiments about Christianity. Hence, the answer is with the church. We need to get our Christian mind back. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to be your salt and light. You have called us to be the leaven that leavens the lump. you called us to be gentle as lambs. You've called us to be as sharp as a tack. You've called us to be educated. You've called us to renew our minds. We thank you, God, that you have caused us as a people to be the most free people in the earth. But, Lord, we see the gap between where we are and where we should be. And we ask, God, that you would stir our hearts afresh, Lord, to get back to your truth, to get back to your word, to reclaim our Christian mind, our Christian heritage. Our prayer this morning, God, is that you would conform us to you and to your word. And as Hosea the prophet said, we want to delight in the knowledge of God. So Jesus, put something fresh within us, stir within us a hunger, stir with us a thirst, God, to know more about you, to study a word more deeply. We thank you now in the precious name of Jesus, amen.